0: This is Dennis Mundy. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, uh, Anne Glagg. She is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Central Florida. She is co-editor of Homegrown Gurus from Hinduism in America to American Hinduism and has uh, published widely on Contemporary Buddhism. Her latest book, American Dharma, It's been put out by Yale University Press. Uh, Anne, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on and speak with us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: Anne, let's fill our uh, listeners in on uh, something about you uh, and your own uh, background. If you could uh, (laughs) briefly uh, tell us something of, of your own spiritual history and What drew you to the academic study of religion, and especially why this current book on modern Buddhism, or postmodern, I should say?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I think I grew up Catholic, and I left the church when I was a teenager, but the teachings on social justice, the Catholic teachings on social justice um, through liberation theology have definitely had a lasting kind of impact on me. Um, my adult spirituality has um, my first kind of introduction um, to adults, you know, as an adult was, um, the I guess, neo-advaita, the kind of non-dual world. Um, and then I practiced um, in the insight community and the Tibetan uh, Buddhist Nyingma tradition, which I still practice in. Um, I'm also a student uh, in the Diamond Approach, uh, Hamid Ali and Karen Johnson's uh, Diamond Approach. So yeah, I'm a, you know I've I've done a I've been involved in a few groups and maybe have a similar background I imagine as as many of your listeners. Um, in terms of you know my academic studies, um, I do identify as a kind of scholar-practitioner. I've always you know I think of religious studies as a vocation for me. Um, and I've, I guess I've just always been interested in bringing a kind of critical kind of historical and sociocultural lens to um, Asian, you know, religion traditions and to kind of non-dual mysticism. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of a, a little bit of my my background. And,
2: and just for, um, go ahead, to clarify go ahead. Uh, for listeners hearing your accent, what part of Texas are you from? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, pro- well, I'm from Liverpool. I'm from <laughs> Liverpool, yeah, oh. in the northwest of England.
0: And yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, 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 I have a question. I to...
2: recognize the accent. Uh, you,
0: yeah. You're, you're, yeah. You're an academic. You're a professor of religious studies. Uh, often, and I've been told this by a a good friend of mine who's a professor of uh, religious studies, uh, one not necessarily be a practitioner of any religion or have any beliefs, uh, religious beliefs whatsoever, uh, to teach religious studies or comparative religions. Uh, In your case, you are practicing uh, a variety of uh, spiritual techniques uh, or you have you have a particular spiritual angle is this advantageous or a disadvantage or does it interfere in any way with your teaching uh, religious studies and uh, does it sometimes come up in the academic world that you live in uh, the issue of uh, teaching about religion and uh, having beliefs in religion
1: yeah that's a great question I think it you know it really depends on who you ask in the field. So religious studies is, you know, it's a very broad field and, you know, on the one extreme, you've definitely got scholars who would, you know, really, you know, kind of look down a little bit on, um, you know, they don't believe that, they think there should be a really clear separation between religious practice and religious scholarship. Um, But then on the other kind of, you know, extreme, on the other side, there are a lot of you know, scholars who are, are publicly practitioner kind of scholars. So in in the in the in the, in the case of Buddhism, um, many of the major figures uh, in Buddhist studies are also practising Buddhists and you know teachers of Buddhism, you know, quite you know prominent teachers. Um, some of them are public, you know, out, you know, kind of out of the closet. Um, and some are, you know, less, you know, more more private about declaring their kind of practice history. So I think, you know, some scholars, you know, might find it problematic that I am very, you know, kind of a, both a participant and an observer of contemporary Buddhism. Um, but I'm fortunate enough that there's already a kind of precedent in the field for, you know, Buddhist practitioner scholars. So I think you know the most important thing is just to be you know clear about you know the the ways in which your practice history or practice location influences your scholarship so I, I kind of tackle you know my kind of identity, my location as an insider outsider at the start of my book there's a a couple of pages kind of reflecting on on that. Um, In terms of the classroom, because that's a slightly different space, you know, it's a different kind of space than Mm -hmm. the collegial space. Um, I, you know, again, there's such a lot of variety in how scholars teach, but I'm I kind of believe in transparency. So I often share my own religious history with students. So I I always say, well, I'm kind of a Catholic still because Catholicism shaped me, you know, so deeply. But I, you know, do currently practice Buddhism and I do, you know, so I kind of share, you know, my narrative with the students. But I try and do it in a way that doesn't, you know, impinge or kind of intrude on their on their on their kind of experience in the classroom. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really I think it's really individual. You know, some scholars would say they never reveal anything about their own religious background in the classroom.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the, your current book, a new book, American Dharma, Buddhism Beyond Modernity is the subtitle. Um, what drew you to that uh, study of contemporary Buddhism to the degree you would um, turn out more than three hundred pages of, and, 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 and I, I mean, I know how much research you had to do because I did it, you know, from the Hindu side essentially, but yeah, you know, it was different. Through. Yeah. Uh, so, what drew you to that, and what are the main issues you wanted to address? Um, I think you
1: know what drew me to it was that, you know, there's just, I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of activity kind of happening in, you know, these, particularly the American Buddhist communities that I study, which are, you know, kind of convert, historically white, kind of middle-class kind of lineages. They just, there is just a lot of really exciting, um, you know, developments happening and no one had, had really written you know, there's been very little work done on these communities since, you know, the last big wave of scholarship was um, probably about, I don't know, maybe 18 years ago. And then there's just been a couple of books, but it was just, I just really felt that the scholarship in the field needed kind of updating. Um, and I also had a personal, you know, a personal kind of connection and, you know, some of the questions that I saw the communities were wrestling with you know, questions that I also was wrestling with, you know, that just felt very kind of, you know, existential in a way for me. You know, what is the relationship between, you know, racial justice, social justice, and, you know, non-dual kind of spiritualities. And so, yeah, so I think it was, you know, it's kind of a labour of love. I mean, the project was... It was a man's, <laughs> it's a very ambitious uh, project, um, but it was super exciting to do, you know, to, to kind of, really, really a privilege to work on, you know, this kind of material that's just so interesting from a professional and personal standpoint. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and uh, your movement from, say, Catholicism to Buddhism, uh, did it have to do with uh, teachings in Buddhism in regard to social justice? That attracted you more to Buddhism than I would say, maybe maybe away from Catholicism? And if so, what what would be some of those specific teachings in regard to social justice that come from Buddhism that most attracted you?
1: Yeah, well, to be honest, um, you know, I grew up Catholic, and when I was a teenager, I kind of realized that I was gay. Um, And so I didn't really see a place for myself, you know, in Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church. Um, so that was, you know, in a way it was kind of, I felt kind of pushed out of Catholicism and then, you know, just as a teenager I kind of had, I guess I had a kind of series of, you know, what at the time kind of felt like mystical experiences, um, but the, the nature of the experiences were really impersonal and kind of non-dual mm. and so they didn't make sense to me from a Catholic, you know, kinda of monotheistic mm. background and mm-hmm. you know, at the time I I didn't know that there was a rich history of, you know, Catholic mysticism.
2: Mm-hmm. And and
1: maybe if I had known that I might have, you know, stayed in Catholicism. But I think like a you know, in a way it's kind of strange because, you know, when I became a scholar I I mean it's it's really like the people like you, Phil. I I don't I don't know your background as much, Derek, so but Phil you know, I know something of your autobiography and you know, of the mm-hmm. kind of 60s and 70s, gen- you know, the boomer generation and mm-hmm. their kind of journey into Asian religions. Like, in a way, I had that journey, but I had it in Liverpool in the 1980s. <laughs> it was really strange. So, yeah, it was quite, you know, it's quite quite kind of a strange trajectory. So, that that's kind of what led me to Asian religions, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Um, and the social justice aspect, I you know, I still, I, I still feel, I guess that, uh, you know, liberation theology in both, you know, Catholic and and Protestant lineages, I, I really draw, draw, you know, on those traditions for social justice inspiration. Probably more than Buddhism, actually. Um, I just, I find the image of, you know, Christ as, you know, one with marginalized populations and suffering people it's just a very powerful kind of religious icon for me.
2: And, well, that uh, brings me to one of the areas I I was going to uh, uh, address with you, which is the uh, area of engaged Buddhism. Uh, Actually, a lot of people feel uh, that uh, the at least as it's been um, manifested in the West, has been uh, too detached. And... uh, there's been a, a counter movement toward engaged Buddhism, and so how did how is that shaping up in your uh, research?
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the I think most fascinating things. You know, I, I really explore it in my uh, chapter on racial justice work, and so essentially, I think what we're seeing, you know, I argue this in the in the book, is you know we're seeing the emergence of this notion of collective liberation. Um, And it's rooted, I think, in Asian Buddhist modern, in the Buddhist lineages, it is rooted in Asian Buddhist modernism and socially engaged Buddhists in Asia, Thich Nhat Hanh Hanh actually coined the term engaged Buddhists. Um, But it's really taken off, you know, now I think there's a a really big, you know, movement. Um, So let me give you two examples. Uh, There was a meeting at the White House, the first U.S. Buddhist White House uh, meeting, leaders, Buddhist leaders, White House meeting, and they presented a statement, and they basically forefronted two things in the statement. One was climate justice, you know, environmental Mm -hmm. work, and the other was racial justice, and they kind of framed this in the language of collective liberation, that, you know, it's not enough for, you know, people to be individually realized or individually liberated, but we need to be, you know, moving towards a collective awakening. Um, and so I also, you know, I can see this happening in the yoga world. Yes. I can see it happening in the non dual world if you yes, see yes. conferences. And also in the diamond approach, you know, there's been a similar movement. So it's really interesting. I've, I've kind of written about it in a paper uh, which is called From the Psychological to the Cultural Spiritual Bypass. So mm. I think it's a kind of extension of, you know, what does awakening mean in this present? Historical, you know, socio-cultural moment. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I think it's you know really exciting.
0: Right. And, and in your book, uh, American Dhamma, Dharma, which is now out, uh, Yale University Press, uh, what was the um, inspiration? What were you hoping to accomplish when you wrote the book? Why another book?
1: Why another book? That's a really good question because there are so many books, and I often kind of question the value of them. Well, I think, you know, two things. One, is it's a kind of academic contribution. So the kind of, you know, major framework of understanding contemporary Buddhism is what we call uh, Buddhist modernism. And I'm kind of pushing that kind of paradigm further. So I basically argue that that theoretical framework within Buddhist studies doesn't, doesn't account for what's happening on the ground. So I'm offering my colleagues in Buddhist studies, you know, a new kind of framework or an extended framework. And then the second contribution, I think, you know, I also hope, you know, for practitioners, I wrote the book really to be to be accessible to practitioners as well as scholars. Is just really to kind of offer a kind of map of, you know, all of these, you know, changes that are happening quite rapidly, um, and kind of, you know, showing that there are, you know, it just seems like a lot of, you know, a lot of unrelated stuff is happening but from an out you know from a kind of an outside perspective because I'm kind of outside inside but you know from a kind of scholarly perspective I, I could really see patterns across these different you know communities and case studies so yeah I'm just kind of wanting to offer it to you know practitioners to kind of hopefully help them make sense of what's happening in their communities in a you know kind of wider kind of clearer way
2: um one uh, quick interruption. Uh I'm hearing a sort of uh, rattling sound. Yeah, I was
0: just so, sending you a text in regard to that film. Yeah, no, oh. I'm
1: Yeah, I am in the chair. I'll keep really still. Okay. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks. Anne. Um well, at least we know the source. That's all that really matters. Yeah.
2: Okay, as long as yeah, we should watch out for that those external sounds. And um the, the contemporary uh, world of uh, Buddhism in America, or I should say the history of it, especially the last 40, 50 years, like the world of yoga and uh, meditation on the sort of Hindu side, um, there are s- certain issues that uh, come to be somewhat controversial or at least uh, thorny in in the uh, uh realm of practitioners, and it, one of them is the secularization of teachings and practices. In, in the Buddhist world, that would be uh, mainly around mindfulness. What What have you found in that regard, and uh, how concerning is it to uh, traditional teachers?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So as you know, there's a whole chapter on mindfulness in the book. Um, I think it's, it's kind of complex, you know, I try and avoid polemical positions, you know, I think that, I think the secularization of mindfulness has, you know, brought real, real benefits to, you know, many different populations. I think it's, you know, helping, you know, marginalized populations, you know, the secularization of mindfulness for example, has allowed a kind of social justice work with mindfulness. Um, But on the other hand, it's also, you know, produced a kind of commercialized, you know, corporate kind of Mac mindfulness. I mean, it's, I think it's just an incredibly complex phenomena. So what I kind of chart in the book is the ways in which the Buddhist community have responded to secular mindfulness. So on the one hand, you've got many of the Buddhist teachers have been major promoters of secular mindfulness, but then you've also had this, you know, kind of pushback um, from more traditional communities and I kind of map out, you know, the different arguments that's been made. I think that the result of it is that there is a kind of deeper reflection on, you know, okay, you know, maybe the mindfulness revolution isn't like so great, you know, you know, it's, not, it's moved from a kind of maybe a naive kind of utopic view of mindfulness is going to save the world to like, okay, how can we make secular forms of mindfulness maybe, you know, less commercial, um, less individualistic, you know, less kind of likely to be co-opted in, you know, service of things that are against Buddhist goals, you know, like right livelihood and, and what not. Um, so I think actually the critiques have really resulted in real action on the ground of secular mindfulness teachers, many of whom are actually Buddhists as well, of really kind of, you know, revisioning mindfulness. So I, I quote Vince Horn. he's a Buddhist geek guy, he does also Meditate I.O., but he talks about second generation of mindfulness. So secular mindfulness, which is more relational and more ethical. Um, so I think that those forms of mindfulness are you know obviously still different than traditional Buddhist mindfulness, but are p- perhaps more kind of congruent with the kind of you know some of the kind of intentions of Buddhist practice like non-harm and interdependence. Um, yes yeah, so is, is, is there is uh,
2: there if I can follow up Dennis is there any concern that something is lost when it's oh, yeah. secularized mm-hmm.
1: I think that, yeah, I think there is a huge concern, you know, there's a huge concern that, well, there's a huge concern that the ethical, you know, the ethical foundations that, you know, that, you know, mindfulness in the the Pali canon is practiced as, you know, one part of the Noble Eightfold Path, which includes ethics, it includes community, you know, it's it's a, it's part of a community, it's practiced as part of a monastic community, it's also geared towards liberation, um, So I think, you know, there are definite concerns. um, But then on the other hand, you know, Buddhist practices, you know, it's not like mindfulness is the first form of Buddhist practice, you know, to be geared towards pragmatic goals. I mean, there's a whole history of, you know, rich Buddhist practices geared towards health, geared towards wealth. Um, So I think as a scholar, you know, you want to kind of resist reifying, you know traditional or textual perspectives at the same time you know you also want to be you know you know you want to shine a light on you know the critiques the very valid critiques and um you know a lot of people have done a lot of work in that area and I and I hope hopefully I you know I kind of I cover and kind of catalog them in my book Mm -hmm. um so yeah I just you know I, I I think it's complex I think there's lots of different aspects to it and would just kind of caution against any one polemic, oh, it's always good or it's always bad, kind of Mm -hmm.
0: position. And and what uh, Buddhist practices do you participate in, if any?
1: Um, Yeah, no, I'm in in a uh, a Tibetan (laughs) Buddhist Sangha. I practice with Anne Klein and Harvey Aronson, as you might know, I don't know if you know them. So Anne Klein is a Buddhist scholar at Rice, Um, she's an incredibly prolific scholar. Um, And she's also a, you know, Buddhist teacher. She has a center in Houston, but she also teaches internationally. And her husband, Harvey Aronson, um, was a scholar, um, but left academia and is trained as a therapist. And he wrote a great book, really excellent book, called Buddhist Practice on Western Ground. So that book's actually a really good example of, like, how to take, you know, traditional Buddhist practices That were forged in very different historical and cultural contexts and translate them, you know, to a kind of American Western contemporary context without, you know, doing massive violence to them. So again, you know, I would always, you know, say, you know, I think it's important to always be thinking about buddhism as an embodied practice like it's always happening in, in but literally you know bodies human beings and bodies that are situated in historical and so, so, socio-cultural contexts so a translation is always a part of buddhism um but i think the trick is you know if you're well if you're someone who really cares about you know buddhism the trick is to like you know, translate without, you know, really doing violence and reducing the practices to, you know, mulch. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I think there's some great mulch. people. I think there's people that are really doing that. And you know, I'm not I'm not one of them. I'm just kind of I'm just recording people who are doing that.
2: <laughs> Is there um you know, most people when they think of Buddhism in America, they think of you know, maybe the the beat generation uh, and their fascination with Zen, and then later the sort of mindfulness. American teachers like Jack Kornfeld and John Kabat-Zinn and, and Sharon Salzberg and those people. Um, but there's a lot of uh, people of Asian descent practicing more traditional Buddhism in America. We we seldom hear about, is there any um, conflict or tension between the, the sort of uh, people who were born into Buddhism and continue it here in America and the sort of what you would call converts to Buddhism, which is now two, three generations gone
1: by now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, there is a tension. I mean, there's actually, I think there's, you know, really a violence has been done by white Buddhists and also I would include scholars Um, as well as practitioners that we have many of us have erased you know those those communities Asian American communities Um, so I think the 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 tension has come from basically white Buddhists kind of you know taking all the limelight Mm. Um, and I think that that's something that's happening you know there's a lot of you know there's more kind of attention and realization of the kind of violence that has the erasure that's been done to you know Asian American Buddhist communities, um, you know, Japanese Buddhists who you know brought brought Buddhism um to America. Um but you know most of the attention in the kind of popular Buddhist media and has been on you know white Buddhists and they're the Buddhists that I also pay attention to. Um yeah. so it's it, I, I you know again I you know I kind of bring that up in the book um but as well as you know we, we talk about heritage Buddhists, um, you know, Asian-American Buddhists, um, and then we talk about convert Buddhists. But those terms are problematic because, you know, for example, with the convert Buddhist term, um, many, you know, there are now, ch- like, like say, I think you might have heard the phrase Dharma brats. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of, you know, kind of, like, funny term, but it's, it's basically children born into Shambhala. So they've been born into convert lineages, but so they're considered kind of convert Buddhist, but they're not actually convert Buddhists because they they've grown up in a Buddhist family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that would be one disruption. And then there's also Asian Americans who have practiced and then, you know, met more, you know, the inside community, which is traditionally thought of as a convert community because it was started by white converts. You know, but there's a lot of Asian Americans practicing in, the, in, the, in, in that lineage now. So there's a disruption of those kinds of categories, what yeah. No,
2: and probably a lot of uh, Asians born into uh, Buddhist families from of Asian descent who have very little to do with their uh, ancestral religion and are in many ways less Buddhist than some of yeah, the uh, I mean,
1: there's just I think you know there's just a tremendous variety. But some of the problem is that we you know we we don't. Those stories aren't kind of appearing in the popular magazines or mm-hmm. even in some of the American, you know, Buddhist academic works. But actually, I, I think that's something that is changing. You know, I know that Tricycle, Lion's Raw and Buddha Dharma are really, you know, kind of committed to, um, you know, featuring more kind of interviews uh, with different types of American Buddhists. I mean, they're all American Buddhists, right? One of the yeah. problems is when we say American Buddhism, our mind goes to white convert Buddhists. And right. I must right. say, unfortunately, the title of my book doesn't help <laughs> um, because it also uh-huh. gives that impression, which was a, well, the title is a compromise between me and the publisher. So, <laughs>
0: Okay. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for your time. Are, are there any uh, final points that you'd like to make? And uh, Phil, if you have any other questions. I do. I have, have one important,
2: important question. question if I may. Um, yes, okay. And um, as you know, uh, when I wrote American Veda, the hardest thing I had to do was address the uh, sex scandals that uh, um, occurred among many of the gurus who came here. You have no doubt encountered similar uh, uh, kind of uh, phenomena in the American Buddhist world. Uh, and lately, uh, you know, we're recording this in, in March of 2019, there have been a, 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 some that have gotten a lot of attention. What have you found in that regard, and how have people in the you know, the practitioner community responded to it?
1: Yeah, well, that's a brilliant question. Um, so, there is a chapter, sorry, I'm kind of promoting my book all the time, but there is a chapter in my book on the Zen sex scandals, And what I kind of chart there is, you know, one major response to the scandals has been this kind of call for the need for more kind of therapeutic, you know, psychological, psychodynamic trainings within Buddhist sanghas. So Mm -hmm. a lot of Zen practitioners, some of whom are therapists themselves, or some who entered therapy as a result of looking for answers that they weren't finding within, you know, their Buddhist sangha you know, of really kind of the way that they've interpreted these scandals is really through a kind of psychological lens. So, you know, they've talked of the teacher as a kind of narcissist and, you know, the practitioners as having these projections and, you know, the sanghas kind of resembling kind of abusive families. So I think one of the main responses has been a kind of psychological lens. I mean, John Wellwood, you know, I think he recently Mm -hmm. died, unfortunately, but he coined the great term. the spiritual bypass Mm -hmm. so it's essentially this kind of realization that you know buddhist practice as practice you know in, in america in these communities you know doesn't have all the answers and that it's really useful and maybe actually even necessary to bring in some psychology to think about you know conflict resolution like different sets of skills that might prevent you know these abuses happening Um, And if you don't mind, I'll also give a plug, I'm actually working on a new book project that's just going to be focused on sexual abuse and misconduct in American Buddhism with my colleague Amy Langenberg. So we're hoping to give a kind of account of how is sexual misconduct understood in canonical Buddhism, you know, how has it been understood historically. And then look at, you know, a few, three case studies in contemporary Buddhism and kind of try and think, you know, historically and cross-culturally to kind of make sense of some of the confusion that's happening. Um, but it's it's not going away. I mean, it's reoccurring, as you know, you, you addressed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's happening in the yoga world, you know, yeah. Matthew Ransky's got a great book coming out. So I think it's something that communities really need to address, and I think it's going to have... You know, a really big impact on shaping Buddhist communities in the future.
2: <sighs> Some things are perennial.
0: Right. Some things have a Good luck
2: tackling all that. Man. We,
0: we won't even get into the, uh, uh, your background <laughs> in Catholicism yeah. and what, what, what has gone on and continues to go on there.
1: But uh, yeah, man, really. that's a whole. Oh yeah, that's a that's another that's a whole. I mean, that's a whole
0: podcast, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, again, the book "American Dharma," uh, published by Yale University Press. And thank you so very, very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Derek and Phil. It was really lovely chatting to you.
2: Okay. we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and uh, keep up the good work. Okay, bye. And...